On behalf of the staff of Nova Community Church, I wanted to thank you for the Christmas gift that we received. We counted the privilege to serve the church vocationally. We look forward to a wonderful and exciting new year. Please turn your Bibles this morning to Nehemiah chapter 1. Old Testament book of Nehemiah in chapter 1. You can find that on your Nova Community Church app in the Bible portion, the Bible tile on that app. We are beginning a new series on the Old Testament book of Nehemiah today that will run us all the way up to Easter. And Easter this year is early. It's April 1st this year is is Easter Sunday. I'm going to give us a reason, some reasons why we are looking at the book of Nehemiah in the beginning of this year, and then we'll look at some historical context of the book, and then we'll take a look at the first few verses in chapter 1. Now, I don't know about your holidays, but if your holidays were anything like mine, they were filled with gatherings, and mine started right in the beginning of December, and it kind of just all the way went into the new year over the next month. But The gatherings were filled with friends and family, and some of those family and some friends I only see once a year. I don't know about you, but um, I'd see some people just once a year right around the end of the year, and when we gather together, we catch up with what's going on in life, and it seems kind of silly to me, really. Just once a year, I see these people, and, and we say, well, How's it going? And then you have to give a one-year recap on, on, on your life. And, and um, sometimes it's, so, it's Happy New Year, and what, what are you going to do this year? How's this year going to be for you? And, and, I, and I'm, it's, I have a hard time with those answers. I don't like to be real superficial when I answer those questions, but I, I, I can't help it because I know ultimately the opinion of my life, about how last year was and how I want this year to go, it's very self-centered. It's really about how I want things to go. It's all about me. It's what I did in 2017, where I traveled, where I want to travel in 2018, what I want to happen in 2018. It's all about, well, I was pretty healthy this year, and, and the kids are doing well, and and uh, how's the church? Well, the church is doing well in the open campaign. And, you know, um, and, uh, you know it's, it's all about, generally, it's all about, it's all about me. And if it was a good year, or if it wasn't a good year, we judge it by our self-focused assessments. It's a reason we get frustrated with circumstances in our life on a, on a daily basis. It's it's the reason we get disappointed in the outcomes sometimes. It's, it, it's the reason why we get angry that things aren't going our way, because it's really just all about me. And we wish our spouse would get that, right? We wish our coworkers would understand that. We wish that guy that's driving the car so slowly in front of us would, would really comprehend that. But let's be honest. Let's be honest, first Sunday of the year. This is the default position of the human heart. It's in everyone, everywhere, all the time. On on top of all of this default position of the human heart, 
Our, our, our nation, our country, where we live, it doesn't help things either. You and I are living in a country, and I'll just even maybe make it more regional. You and I are living in a region, Southern California, that we exalt a type of radical individualism that undermines God's vision for a fulfilled human life. So on top of the spiritual issue that we have, that our life is all about us, in that we're the center of the universe, we live in a nation that celebrates the individual at the cost of the whole. And God's picture of human flourishing from the scriptures is different than the American way of radical individualism in our self-centered view of who we are. Let's take a look at just at Nehemiah as a whole. We've been reading through it on our staff and trying to break it up into 10 or 12 chunks to preach through. And, and as I look at the whole of Nehemiah, two lessons sort of pop out at us. And so generally, if we were going to say, what's the book of Nehemiah about? I mean, there's, there's all kinds of specific things you can look at. But generally, just a, a, just a, 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 a high view of Nehemiah, just a, looking at Nehemiah from a really high position, the first lesson is this. Our best life begins when our preferences become secondary to God's will. Our, our best life is, is about when our preferences become secondary to God's will and how God has revealed himself in the scriptures. That's our best life. It's, it's God's picture of human flourishing. It's God's picture of the abundant life. It's God's picture of, of the fullness of life when our preferences come secondary to God's will. And it's not that your preferences are not important, but to have a great life, I mean, to have just a great, great life, your preferences are not as important as the will of God. That's the first lesson, just on a real high view of Nehemiah. The second lesson is this. When it's all said and done, God's will is that we pursue joy rather than our own happiness. God's will is that we pursue joy in our life rather than our own happiness. Now, I, I, I think of these two lessons in Nehemiah, and I think, I wonder if this could be the motto or the mantra of our current culture. If, if we took these two and we put them on a big sign and hung them on a big sign right outside and said, this is our motto, this is our current culture, this is what we should go after, I don't think it would be very popular. Do you? Your better pursuit is not happiness. Because happiness, if you've ever pursued happiness, or maybe you're pursuing it right now, your better pursuit is not happiness because happiness is fleeting and happiness will always betray you. Your better pursuit needs to be joy. And joy will always transcend your circumstances. I, I was reminded of this in talk about holiday gatherings. In the middle of December, we, this is our second year we, we uh, did this here at Nova. We had Campfire Christmas. And we were outside in the beautiful plaza on a cool, it wasn't really cold, it was a December evening and and um, it was a beautiful night. 
I mean, it was, it was a beautiful night. It, the worship team was leading uh, Christmas songs and worship songs, sitting under or standing under the Nova Stone Pine that was decorated in beautiful lights. The hot chocolate and apple cider, they were just on point. I mean, it was hot and it was tasty. And um, people we love were, were gathered together. And one of the things we've done over the last couple of years is, is we put together, um, well, you put together, really, Memorial Luminaires. And they're just white um, lunch bags, paper lunch bags, and then you personalize them with, with um, someone that you loved and that you lost. And, um, and you write on them and you write a message if you want. And we put them all around the plaza, a hundred of them or more, just all around the plaza. And I, I, I don't know what, what was going on, but I really sensed God and the Holy Spirit was just leading me just to kind of hang around those. And so I was, there was um, singing and, and uh, people towards the stone pine, and I was under the pergola, and, and I was just reading each of those uh, memorial luminaires and, and seeing the names of people that I love that are part of our church family. And just, just really just entering into a, a sense of that loss and that love and the joy of knowing them, but really the sadness of that too. And all of this reminded me that this earthly life is not all that there is. And as I looked at these luminaries, I, I was thinking that God has a greater will and a greater plan no matter how much we want things to go our way, God's will is primary. And I would gather with people, and they were looking at their luminaires, and I'd put my arm around them, and I'd say, tell me about this person that you lost. And we'd tell stories about it, and there were some tears, and there was laughter and joy and all of that. And there is a deeper and abiding joy that God's in control of life. That's what all of this reminded us, reminded me of. And the book of Nehemiah will deepen this understanding in these lessons. Let's take a look at our text today. Chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven, then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. 
But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. This is God's word for us today. Let's take a look at some historical context because it's important for us to understand where we're at in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. In the, in the second book in the, in the Old Testament, in the Bible, in Exodus, what we find is under the leadership of Moses, God calls the nation of Israel to escape the tyranny and the slavery in Egypt. And they get to the border, this group, this, the children of Israel, the people of Israel, with Moses leading them, they get to the border of the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And there they doubted, though, the goodness in the power and the promise and the grace of God. And so God allowed them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And in the wilderness, the, the generation that doubted God, they died. And then Moses died also, and, and now they have a new leader, Joshua, and he gets everyone together. And under Joshua's leadership, God leads Israel into the promised land, and they establish themselves as a nation. They begin to look around and they, they want a king to lead them. And so God gives them the desires of their heart and anoints Saul as king of Israel. Saul, he was a man's man. He was a foot taller than every other man. He had a ripped physique. He was a great hunter. Men wanted to be like him. Women loved him. And Saul did not trust the goodness and the power, and the provision, and the grace of God. So he was removed as king, and David, the shepherd boy, was anointed as king. And under David's reign, Israel flourishes. And when David dies, he turns the kingship over to his son, Solomon. And under Solomon's leadership, Israel fractures into the northern kingdom called Israel, and the southern kingdom called Judah. The northern kingdom did not do well at all with the leadership of wicked kings, and in 722 BC, Assyrians came and conquered the northern kingdom and scattered the people about. The southern kingdom did a little bit better. They had a, um, a godly king and a wicked king, and then they got a godly king and a wicked king, and a godly king and a wicked king, and a godly king and a wicked king, and 136 years after the northern kingdom was conquered, the people who were deported and scattered all around. The southern kingdom falls by the hand of the Babylonians. The Babylonians deported and exported the people all across the region of the Babylonian Empire. So what we have here is the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. They get conquered and they're just scattered all over the place. And then Persia shows up on the scene as the big dog in the world. They want to conquer the world. And so the Persians conquer the Babylonians who conquered the Assyrians the Persian Empire takes root in the ancient world. And at the end of Second Chronicles in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit puts in the mind of King Cyrus of Persia to allow a portion of the Jewish people to be released to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple 
that lie in ruins. And that's where we get the book of Ezra. And the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah are happening simultaneously in history. And that's where we're at in history. Let's take a look at chapter 1, and we'll just call this the introduction in three movements. We'll take this in the first seven verses. The first movement we have is the broken walls here. In verse 1, in chapter 1, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, which is December, November, December. You want to make a note of that in your Bible. It's November, December, the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. Now, I, I just want to stop here and say, this just reads like a story. It's sort of like a journal entry in, 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 in Nehemiah's diary. It just, it's just a story here of what's going on during this time. In verse 3, he writes, And they said to me, Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. So we get this picture now of what's going on. But I want to stop and talk about security and protection and law enforcement for cities a little bit. Today, the laws of any city are not enforced by walls and strong gates. Maybe some of you live in gated communities. Maybe some of you live in a security apartment or a condo complex. But in this period of human history, gates and walls are important for security and for law enforcement. And without solid gates, without solid walls, a city would be at the mercy of gangs and criminals. And even if there was a good army or a good police presence in the city without a good wall and strong gates, crime would just be, it would, it would run rampant. In Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28, it says, like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. So let me ask you a question here with Proverbs 25, 28, the understanding of broken walls and, and, and broken gates. What do you think flourishes? What do you think rises to the top? What do you think happens to a city with broken walls and broken gates during that time? Well, it's anarchy. It's crime. It's, it's violence. It's abuse. It's, it's self-centeredness because that is the nature of human beings. We only think about ourselves and what we want. And so without strong walls, without strong gates to the city, without any sort of that law enforcement presence, anarchy reigns. And that's what's going on in Jerusalem. The second part of it, that we find, the second movement here is uh, Nehemiah's response. And he has a response to hearing this news. And in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4, it says, Nehemiah says, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Now, what Nehemiah happens, what happens here is Nehemiah hears the news of broken gates and broken walls and broken people. So he has to sit down and weep. And he prays and he mourns and he fasts at the news of all of this. Now, here's the question is, why does, 
Why does he have this response? It's, it's sort of an unusual response, and let me tell you why. Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. He lives in a palace, and it's 800 miles away. It's sort of like here, those of us in Southern California, and we think about what's happening in Northern California today. Does anyone know what's happening in Eureka, maybe Southern Oregon, in Medford, Oregon? Does someone know what's happening way up there in the upper reaches of Northern California? Probably not, because we don't really care, do we? It's probably cold. It's colder up there than it is here because all we care about is ourselves and what the weather is going down here, right? No, no one really cares. It, it's the same thing with, with Nehemiah. Nehemiah's cupbearer of the king. He lives in a palace 800 miles away. What reason would he need to be compassionate to people 800 miles away? What do we care about what's going on in Northern California 800 miles away? You see... His job, Nehemiah's, was to sample wine and food of the king and to make sure it's not poisonous, to also to make sure that it's, it's good stuff. He's living in a palace. He's living in luxury. He's a trusted staff member. The cupbearer is perhaps the most trusted staff member of the king's court. He's drinking the finest wine. He's eating gourmet delicacies before the king eats them. It's, it's, it, he's not drinking out of any boxed wine in someone's refrigerator. It's Opus One. I mean, this stuff is good stuff. I mean, it's just the greatest delicacies that one could have. There are no threats to the Persian Empire. It's safe. It's secure. He's living the good life. And he doesn't know what's happening 800 miles away. There is no cable news. He does not have a Twitter feed to know what's going on there. He can't dial up Yahoo News to update him on the conditions of Israel. There are no planes, trains, or automobiles that he can get to Israel fast to see what's going on. There is nothing like that. But at the news of the brokenness of the people, most of whom he did not know, he is sickened, it seems, by this tragic news. So he weeps and he fasts and he prays. For days he does this. I think it's good to stop and ask yourself, is this an interesting story? Is this an interesting historical story of one man's life in 444 B.C.? Or is this God's word speaking and leading God's people in 2018? What is this? Remember, God's view of human flourishing flies in the face of radical individualism. The scriptures lead us to see that, that we are blessed people. I mean, we're just blessed people. Nova's a, a blessed church. There are resources that we have as individuals that most of the world doesn't have. Same thing with our church. And so we know as people, a tenth just isn't the Lord's of all that we have. We are blessed people, and 100% of our resources are God's. Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 17 says, Each of you must bring a gift of proportion to the way the Lord your God has blessed you. So enjoy God's blessings to your life. We're not saying don't. It's, it's not a bad thing to have nice things. But the bad thing is this. 
The bad thing is a failure to understand and see all that you have been given to you, all that's been given to you by God, not just for you, but rather to flow out of you towards others. And our preferences need to be secondary to God's will. And this is our understanding, that God has unbelievably been gracious to us, and that and that should free us to be unbelievably gracious to other people. Zechariah chapter 7, it says, And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, This is what the Lord Almighty said, Administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. So as God is painting this picture of, of your best life, of human flourishing, he's, he has his focus outward. He doesn't have his focus inward. But so much of us, our nation, where we live, and, and who, are, who, who we are as, as people, it, we want to focus inward. But God's best for us is that we focus outward. He has us focused on loving one another and serving one another. He has us focused on not oppressing people, caring deeply for the orphan, for the fatherless, and for the widow, having us care deeply for immigrants and refugees, and the alien and the stranger and the impoverished. That's our best life. In, in Colossians chapter 3, it says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion and kindness, and humility, and gentleness, and patience. Does that describe your life in 2017? Kindness, compassion, humility, gentleness, patience. Galatians chapter 2, it says, Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. So as Nova Community Church, this, this Nova Community of Faith, as we move forward, we model... to the world outside, outside of this campus, outside of this building, outside in this community, we model what it looks like to be people of God and to walk in the type of flourishing that God would have us walk in with. And we see the hurts and the hang-ups of people. We enter into their world, sometimes in simple ways, feeding hungry people in northern Gardena, a couple times a, a, a month, doing laundry for, for people in the South Bay that are poor, that are they're hurting in a laundromat here in West Torrance. And so we enter into some very simple ways, and then sometimes we enter into very complex ways. People are complex. They're complicated. And sometimes God's calling us to be really involved with someone in their life that's hurting, that has a hang-up. And I, I think in some ways we do this really well as a church. In some ways, I think, I think we could be challenged more in all of this. So how do we grow? This is the big question. How do we grow this type of compassion? If this is God's best life for us, how do we grow in this? Because the truth is you just can't sort of flip a switch and say, oh, yeah, I'll just be more into joy rather than happiness. I'll, just, I'll, I'll be more into compassion. It, it'll, I'll put my will secondary in God's will. It's not that easy to do, is it? I mean, it's a challenging thing to me. 
So look with me at Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, and, and what I discover here are two things. There are two things that are going to be necessary in order for us to grow in empathy. This is our third movement here in this first chapter. It's, we'll call it a growing compassion. Verse 5. Then I said, the Lord, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself, my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Now, if I want to grow in compassion and I want to grow in empathy for another person and for the world around us, there are two pieces that are imperative for my growth. And the first is this. It's knowing the true God. Knowing the true God. You see what's happening here in verses 5 through 7. There is no tangible evidence right now where Nehemiah is at the people are scattered. The children of Israel are scattered. Some have gotten to go back to Jerusalem, but what they find there are a, a temple that's torn down, walls and gates, and anarchy rules in Jerusalem. So what I, what, I, what, I, what I understand here is there is no tangible evidence right now at this moment in Nehemiah's mind that God has been faithful, that God is keeping his promises. They are scattered like wind all over the ancient world. They've lost that land flowing with milk and honey. But what's Nehemiah's prayer in verses 5 through 7? Nehemiah's praying to God, God, you're faithful. God, you're so good. God, you're a promise-keeping God. God, you've not abandoned us. You're here in our hurt. You love us. You'll keep your promise. And, and, I, and I think, what, what's Nehemiah doing here? Well, he's affirming the greatness of God, even though his circumstances look a little bleak, because he knows the true God has him. He's got him. Even though the circumstances don't look really good, God is still there. And maybe that's where you're at today. Your circumstances don't look really good. but you need to know the true God because he's got you. The second thing that's going to help us grow our compassion is knowing your true self. Because I, I read here too, it's, it, Nehemiah begins to do this. He knows himself, so he begins to confess the sins of Israel. He prays, God, we've not been faithful. We have not kept your commands, God. We have not lined ourselves up with how you've designed the universe to be and to work. And Nehemiah even personalizes it himself. He says, even I and my family, my father's house, we have sinned against you. He knows the true God is faithful, but he also knows the true self, very self-centered, very self-focused. You see, the more of an elevated view you have of yourself, the more it'll be impossible for you to show compassion to those who are hurting. Let me give you some examples. Let, let's just say you're a parent, and your kids, your kids are cute, they're so good-looking, and they're polite and well-behaved. Your kids are um, honors students. 
They're talented artists and musicians. They're superstar athletes. And the reason they're that way is because you're awesome. (laughs) Not because God's gracious. And if that's the way you feel, even just a little bit, if that's the way you feel, you'll be hard-pressed to show compassion for anyone who has a wayward child. Because if they would have just done what you did in all of your awesomeness, they'd have a superstar kid just like you. So why didn't they follow your parenting advice anyways? That's why their kids are the way they are. Here's another example. If you're, if you're financially set, and that's not because God's been gracious to you, but because you work so hard and you've earned all of the money that you worked for and you've saved and you've budgeted and you've invested wisely, how impossible will it be for you to be empathetic towards someone who's impoverished? You see, the more you're the author and the perfecter of your life, the more God's blessings on your life are because of you and not because of a gracious God. And if that's the case, it'll be impossible for you to show empathy to others who are struggling. Why is that? It's because you're totally picking awesome. That's why. You think you got it all together because you have followed the right road. And everyone should do what you did. And that thinking will rot out your soul's ability to be compassionate and merciful. It'll breed in you an indifference that's unacceptable before God. It'll cancel out your ability to walk in unity and love and compassion with one another, whether they're rich or poor, whether you're broken or put together. And it'll create a judgmental harshness among us that God will have nothing to do with. So my hope is this, as we dive deeper into the book of Nehemiah, is that more and more and more and more we'll feel small and God and we'll see God as big. Then we might see compassion in our hearts growing for those who are broken all around us. Amen.